0: Um. All right. I guess we're ready to go. It's five fifteen. I'm going to speak into the mic. Um, my name's Robin and I host a podcast called Inkstead. So sort the of Vancouver here. It's been running for twelve years now, and uh, I interview comic folks. And here I am talking to three indie
1: legends. We have Tell me Ken more. Tell me more. Did you know you were an indie legend? Yeah. Not till
2: today. <laughs> <laughs> but you all knew, didn't you? Uh, that would be Ken Stacy at the end. Ultimately. The one and only. Yes. <laughs> thank, you, thank, you. thank God. <laughs> <laughs> now we're having a dance off. I would have stretched.
0: Hey, now uh, we're, we're talking. Have, now we're talking.
3: We have Gerhard. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> is that your real name? It is. So, it is.
0: And last but not least, Paul Chadwick. And Paul, I should mention you have a new book that's out last week? This
1: week? This week? This week. It is premiering at my table at the show. (gasps) There we go. Best Wishes, which is written by Mike Richardson. Actually, I wrote and drew it from a treatment that Mike wrote.
2: Um, So
1: this is good because... Anything you don't like, that was in my street. <laughs> 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 Anything you think is brilliant, I add it. But, or vice versa, depending on who's talking. Funny how
4: that works. Mm. And you might
0: be more familiar from uh, Paul's work in the past with the wonderful Concrete series.
1: Um, <clears throat> which I'm returning to next.
3: Yeah?
0: Fantastic. I uh, brought a book today to get Paul to sign. It's a whole bunch of concrete's bound into one volume, and that's not all the concrete. Um, I think I don't have the short stories in this. And there's some other stuff. <laughs> lots lots of comics. So thank you all for joining us today, the Legends of Indie Comics. Um, I was trying to figure out where to kind of start from this, because it's kind of a, a weird definition of legends. Um, so I thought we could just kind of talk about um, some of the early days of like first getting into comics, because At that point, things were really quite different from the way we are today, and you have come from a lot of different places to get to where you are today. Um, I know Ken was involved heavily in publishing with Vortex.
4: Oh, I go way further back than that, (laughs) (laughs) pal.
0: And I didn't realize, but I was uh, informed earlier that Paul and Ken actually did a book together based on a Harlan Ellison comic.
4: Oh, yeah. Total or in Harlan no, Ellison <laughs> stories. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, this was actually a feature film treatment that Harlan wrote that didn't, didn't fly, but then he sold it to DC Comics, and Harlan and I scripted it, and I drew it. Oh, okay. And Ken did all the digital color, rendered it.
4: Which book was that?
1: Harlan Ellison's Seven Against Chaos.
4: And it took exactly seven years to do, so it was kind of <laughs> prescient that way. <laughs>
0: Um, and that was early digital coloring, wasn't it then? No, 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 no. this
1: just came out, uh, what, oh, three years ago? Yeah, three years, three years ago, years ago. I got it at my education. table for sale.
0: Yeah. There we go. It would have been great if you guys showed up to the con earlier so I could have uh, gone your tables. And... <laughs> oh. <laughs>
1: but I love you all. Um, so do you want breaking in stories? Yeah,
4: breaking in stories. These are our favorite. you
1: want to start, Ken? <laughs> oh,
4: do I have to? Okay, I'll go first. Then. Okay, when I was 11 years old, um, Uh-oh. 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 Okay, settle in for this one. <laughs> I'll give you the short version. Um, I read Marvel comics, and Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko changed my life. And for the most part, I guess it was Stan Lee, who, in his infinite wisdom, gave people credit. And so I remember having a little epiphany when I was eleven, as I was reading one of Fantastic Four or something, and it's like, here's all these guys' names, like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and um, mm-hmm. Joe Rosen and so on. And I thought, hmm, my dad's a fighter pilot, these guys must be somebody's dad, and they do this for a living. That must be a job, I I like that job. And from then on, my life was like really easy. And and happily, I had parents who never, you know, tried to dissuade me from this very atypical career path for an Air Force brat. Um, And so when I was, I guess I was uh, 19, I went to New York Comic Con, and afterwards I went to Marvel Comics, and I banged on Stanley's door, and he said, Stan, give me a job. And he said, go talk to Johnny Romita. Like, who was that anyway? I don't know. Some kid, <laughs> some kid from Canada. And I was offered work as an inker. And I had another epiphany, which was wanting something and having it are very different things. And I realized I would have to move to New York, I would have to specialize, which I'd never liked the idea of. I, I'm one of the kind of people who wants to take all the credit and accept all the blame for what I do so I wanted to do everything and the idea of, of just being an anchor just didn't appeal to me so I went uh, to school, I went back to school, I went to uh, Sheridan College in Oakville and fate intervened in the best possible way, the first person I met on the first day is my wonderful wife Joan, that was in 1974 and she's also a visual storyteller, just finished her first graphic novel, a 250 page book about her struggles with literacy and how she married a crazy cartoonist from outer space. <laughs> and you can find out more about us than not ever want to know. It's being published by Conundrum in 2018. And from there on in, uh, I went to the Ontario College of Artists. I film and video as a way of understanding visual storytelling better, and started doing indie comics uh, like Starreach, and then later segued into working for Marvel, and then away I went. And here I am today. Very good.
3: <laughs> You're not leaving. <laughs> oh, is it my turn? Oh, yes. it's your turn. Uh, Top that, but <laughs> Yeah. How do I follow that? Uh, I got into comics completely by accident. Um, I read comics when I was a kid, like most of us did, and then I grew out of it. And uh, Dave Sim is the one who is the walking, talking comics encyclopedia, and uh, he started publishing self-publishing service in 1977. Initially it was uh, started as a Conan parody and he just wanted to know if he could do three consecutive issues of of a comic (laughs) on a bi-monthly schedule and that led to doing it for 26 years and 300 issues. I joined Dave uh, in the mid-1980s with issue 65. At the time I was doing mostly pen and ink illustrations with watercolor washes on top of them, a lot of landscapes and still lifes and things like that and I was doing uh, exhibits and trying to sell my pieces, and all the pieces I hadn't sold, which was most of them, were hanging on the wall of my living room and any other blank wall I had in, in my apartment. Um, actually, it wasn't an apartment. It was this cool little log cabin just outside of town, and it was party central. Um, every weekend, every day, it wasn't even confined to weekends. Wednesday night church. Six people come over with six cases of beer. It's a Wednesday night. Anyway, um, Dave inevitably ended up at one of the parties, and he saw the uh, artwork I had on the wall. And I knew he was doing a comic at the time, uh, which I found just absolutely fascinating. I just didn't even conceive that you could do this for a living. And um, at the time, Archie Goodwin at Epic uh, Magazine uh, had asked Dave if he was interested in contributing some short color pieces to the magazine and Dave is never really big on color so when he saw my stuff he said if I laid out the page and drew the characters could you do this kind of stuff in behind it and I said "Uh, I don't know (laughs) and we tried it and it was a big hit in epic and I started doing conventions with Dave and I discovered this whole amazing world of comics that I never even knew existed and it's been the major part of my life ever since.
4: And we're glad. All right. <laughs> I have, I have one the I've always wondered, how did Dave decide on three hundred issues?
3: Uh, because at the time, that's what Batman was at. <laughs> I knew that had to be a really good reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. what were you expecting? <laughs> <laughs> well, in
1: 1983, I tried to break into comics with Concrete, and got no takers. So I decided I better establish a professional reputation. So I started lobbying for work and I got my first job drawing Salimba the Jungle Girl for Pacific Comics. And it was, you know, she was uh, like Tarzan, only black and female and she fought very otherworldly, uh, a three-headed were-dog so she's nothing was, like Tarzan. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, the worm boys were not like Tarzan. Written by a very strange guy with a tragic life, Steve Perry. He uh, later got cancer and then was murdered. Cut up in pieces by his uh, roommate. Oh, oh my <laughs> lord.
2: Yeah, lord. But, uh, <laughs> I'm glad
1: you're sitting next to it. <laughs> based on the Salimba samples, um, Archie Goodwin gave me a job penciling Dazzler, which I did for a year. And uh, then Dazzler was canceled to make room for those new universe books they wanted to free up capacity. And I went back to Concrete and did more work on it and learned the lesson that people don't want to see unfinished work. They don't want to see synopses. They want to see finished stories. So I had three issues and two short stories done when I circulated it next, and I got eight offers. That I could, you know, play off each other and wind up with Dark Horse. And the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I tell aspiring artists: finish a story. Right. And what's your story?
0: Um, I have yet to draw anything worth looking at. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. yeah. I think Colin's seen me draw. It. It's not
3: very good that's a lasting impression
0: it's it's not good um now for for paul and Gerhard, um both of you uh worked on quite lengthy works uh, one considerably lengthier than the other um but still a lot of stuff there um i'm curious how when you started on the work and how that kind of your scope of it changed throughout working on it, and especially for you, Gerhard, I guess, kind of changing, kind of understanding what you were doing with comics and learning comics on the fly. What's the question? (laughs) Tell me about the change when you're working on something, you know, 234 issues, was it? Yeah,
3: something like that.
0: And Um, and kind of that change of like when you first start on and kind of...
3: Oh, that was the worst, yeah, when I first started on and basically learning as I was... Learning on the job in front of you know thousands of people that were buying the book, when they, whenever the issue was done, it was like okay, I just have to do better next time, right? It's like hopefully Dave won't kick me off the book until I can get get sink my teeth into this, and uh, but I mean the first few issues of uh, Cerebus itself uh, that Dave started on it were pretty crude too. I mean it it, it is a very daunting thing to um, put yourself out there like that um, and know that. You should be able to do better than this, but I'm sorry, but this is as you know, this is as good as I am right now. I promise I, I will get better next issue, next panel, next page. You know, um, it was so. In one way, it was a very exhilarating learning experience, and, and 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 to watch yourself get better and go okay. And then when something works, you go okay, that worked. I I I, I know how to do that again. That technique, that trick but whatever, right? And you just sort of put that in your bag of tricks, right? And then uh, the next time you're looking at a page and trying to decide how and what to do, you can reach into the bag of tricks and see what applies to the current situation. And over the, over the course of years, you, your bag of tricks gets uh, uh, more full with, with things that uh, are available to you. And thankfully, I got better. And uh, the one thing with Dave and I, we always tried to treat this like a job. I mean, everybody has to have a job. Um, So, and I had a lot of crappy jobs. I was in and out of high school. I would drop out of high school thinking, oh, this sucks, and I'd get a job and go, wow, this sucks, and I'd go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we figured that, you know, since we're going to have to work at something anyway, we get the opportunity to work at something we love doing, which is drawing. And um, so afforded the opportunity to do that. I've forgotten where I was going with this oh treating it as a job um, so and because we were uh, self-publishing we were re- running the publishing company as well so my first thing uh, was go to the mail uh, you know the, the p.o box and pick up the mail and then uh, sit in my office I'd give Dave his mail I'd go through all the, the office stuff and uh, you know, separate out the bills and the checks and and all this kind of stuff. So the first hour or so was usually just strictly office stuff. And then it was time to go downstairs to where the drawing boards were. And Dave usually worked far enough ahead of me that I could, he always uh, hung the pages up on the wall when he was done with them. And I would take down the two facing pages and put them on the drawing board and I would just sit there and stare at them. I wouldn't even pick up a pencil. I would just stare at them. I'd go, okay, where's he got the light? coming from where would the horizon line be on this how much background does this one need where's you know oh here's a splash page coming up we're gonna need more time for that one so how can I do these really quickly and I would sit there and drive I knew it was driving Dave not just like we're on a monthly schedule here he's just sitting there <laughs> and uh but so I didn't pick up my pencil until I already had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted to do and how to get it done by lunchtime right? I had to have the, we had to average a page and a half a day to stay on schedule. God. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you have to figure out how to do it quickly. And I, I'd want to have those two pages uh, at least uh, rough penciled before I let myself eat lunch, right? Uh, and then I we tried to keep it, well, I tried to keep it to like a regular nine to five kind of job. Come five o'clock, sometimes it was six or seven or whatever. I take stuff home on the weekend. But... It was a job. It was a great job, but it was a job. And that's the way we had to treat it, and that's the only way we got through this. It's like, if we, if, if we don't get our page and a half done, you stay until it's done, right? Or, you, you, you know, you're just going to have to make up for it tomorrow or take stuff home on the weekend, right? So it was a job, but it was a great job. Is that good? That's great. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'm curious about kind of how your notion is working through concrete kind of changed um, how you approach comics and kind of how you learn from yourself working on such a long piece.
1: If I were to do it over, I would have taken a cue from Dave Sim and done a 30 year plan.
2: <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, you look at long form TV today, they have these long arcs and things that are set up in the first episode pay off in the 20th episode. You know, you can do that in comics, mm-hmm. but it didn't occur to me because that sort of storytelling just wasn't around that I was aware of anyway. You
4: fooled all of us because reading concrete as long as I have, I thought you had this all figured out. Yeah. I mean, one, one story flows organically into the next. So Yeah, there's a lot of callbacks. Well, what I did
1: plan was my first presentation and it had synopses for the first 10 issues. and man. I did so much better on those first 10 issues <laughs> than I did later. and I don't know. It just goes to show um, I have a rule of thumb. You need to do things twice if you're going to do them right. And it, that sort of translates to you, you have to have like a rough sketch of what you're going to do before a, a more detailed sketch and then a finish. And that 10-issue plan, was that was very helpful to me at the time. But my plan was to do comics for five years, then leave and be an illustrator. You get a real job. You <laughs> get a real <laughs> job, yeah. <laughs> <What>? and, <laughs> and, and, you know, in retrospect, that illustration, painted illustration, is gone as a profession. It's all digital now. Right. And right. and comics, which seem to be dying in the 80s, or maybe just holding on as a hobbyist's thing, um, you know, have taken over the culture. So man, did I look at can <laughs> Ken, for yourself,
0: because uh, your work, you come from a lot of different directions within your That's because I have
4: a really short attention span. <laughs> <laughs> I'm easily distracted. Well, um, being easily distracted. How do you keep focused, then? Um, and and do... do you assume that I do keep focused in <laughs> some way? No, I, um, I'm i constantly looking at, like, no matter what I do, I try to learn something. You know, it's, it's all a learning process. And so... I was constantly looking for opportunities to challenge myself in terms of, you know, whether it's technique or storytelling or, or you know, uh, what have you. The longest thing I ever did was um, a four-issue mini-series of a book I wrote and illustrated called Tempest Fugitive. And it was 196 pages. Painted. And, and painted. Mm. Painted and old I school. And I did that, honestly, goodness, two reasons. One, I love things with wings so I could draw all the airplanes I wanted to. <laughs> and two, I really wanted to learn how to paint and use the airbrush and so on. And um, that worked out great. Well, actually, no, it didn't work out great because um, the deal was they were supposed to have had three issues in the can before they scheduled it. After the first issue, um, a brilliant marketing person who shall remain nameless <laughs> um, on, was was snooping around Karen Berger, my editor's office, and said, "What's this?" And he said, "Oh, it's a book Ken Stacy's doing." It. He said, "Oh, great. We'll schedule it." And so I went from having a relatively (laughs) leisurely pace to it was like hell on wheels for almost two years. Now that having said, I'm in a way, looking back, I'm grateful because if, if, um, there's a great quote from, um, I think it's Orson Welles, who said, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. And if I had an open end, I would still be working on Tempest future today. And I started in 1989, I think. So, yeah, yeah, it would have been beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. would have been just <laughs> the best. Every, every page. I mean, art is never. Listen, folks. Again, like art is never completed. It is simply abandoned because at a certain point you have to say, I got to get this finished. Or your editor's say, you have to get this finished, or, or you don't get paid, and you know you don't eat. So and and you know I think what Karen was saying earlier about how you, you build on your skill set. And it, it's a, it's a tired cliche, but it's very very true that um, yes, an artist, a creative person, what is their next, what is their best work, and it's always the next one, because you are bringing to bear all those things which you have that you have built up. So um, yeah, I did that, and I did 16 issues of Astro Boy, um, which was kind of which was kind of fun, kind of not kind of fun. <laughs> it was now a comic, so I'll say no. Said. Say, <laughs> <enough> said, <yeah. laughs> do you
0: get more um, creatively of doing stuff that's your concept than necessarily doing something like that? Gastric- oh, absolutely.
4: And, and I think it's, uh, but we're all in the same boat. I think, you know, creative people all have ideas and so on, but because we're all so deeply invested in this wonderful geek culture, there's, there's, there's that, you know, there's something really exciting and delightful about doing your favorite character. I mean, Iron Man was my favorite character. And so when I finally got to do Iron Man, I was like, oh, that was great. I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> um, and Astro Boy is like our kids were young, and, and we actually saw Astro Boy for the first time in French. The French networks were showing the color version back in the, I guess, the early 80s, and we thought, wow, what a cool character. And the next thing I know, uh, Now Comics have gotten the rights, and they said, do you want to do this? And they said, do that. So, you know, that's what that's what predicated that. But,
2: um,
0: yeah. Gerhard, I'm wondering, because um, Ken talks about the things he loves drawing, with, like the planes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, working within service and kind of having to kind of cr- really create the whole stage that the the characters are in. What in that process were you doing for yourself in that? Like you say, it's a day job, but there's still parts you put that like excite you, or something like you want to do within it.
3: Right. Well, the that's at the time the, those uh, drawings that I would that that I was exhibiting and what I tended to be either architectural sort of, uh, or... But he always uh, employed some measure of perspective. Um, that, that was something, a learning perspective in, in, like, high school art. And it's like, cool, that's how that works? So so this dot over here, all these lines go to that dot, and all those lines go to that dot, and that makes it look 3D? Cool, I like that. And which worked out really well for Dave, because he was like, oh, <laughs> It was funny. He would sketch in, like, he, he had his notebooks, and he would... Uh, do very rough skate- sketches of how he envisioned the page, but he always said the backgrounds were completely up to me. I could put the interior of a submarine in there if I wanted to <laughs> and uh, it just look kind of weird and uh, it's so but every once in a while he would rough in something on the page itself uh, or even in, in the sketchbook where he was roughing something in and I, I, I might some of them I might uh, take to the photocopier and blow them up a little bit so I could get a better idea of what uh, what he had in mind and it'd be funny because he 'd have almost every perspective line would be heading toward a vanishing point, but two or three would just go off in some <laughs> direction that made no sense <laughs> whatsoever. And uh, I took uh, drafting in high school for a year, maybe. That was too technical. I, I could never have been an architect, and I would never have to bear the responsibility of designing something that was meant to hold things up, you know, and if it, if it didn't, and, you know, I, I didn't want the, the, the responsibility of having a bridge collapse or something. <laughs> so, uh, but I, there were certain technical aspects that, that appealed to me, and uh, so well, a lot of people, when they look through my portfolio there on, at, at the table, they go, wow, you know, did you, did you have architectural training? It's like, well, grade nine drafting, right? That, that's the extent of it. Um, it's just something I enjoy So, which is, I mean, good for doing backgrounds, right? So, and that was my job uh, initially on on Cerebus. I mean, it did expand to more than that. Another thing in high school, I was in the drama club (laughs) and uh, I also did the, uh, I designed the sets and stuff and which was was like uh, doing backgrounds again, right? And uh, so, In Cerebus, uh, especially uh, after Church and State, the first story arc that I was involved with was over, and Dave and I were starting fresh on Jack's story, on a new story arc, I took time for pre-production. So the first issue of Jack's story was actually a little late because um, we were doing all the sort of pre-production stuff. I had floor plans and front-end elevations, and I designed this whole little community where the story was going to take place, and Dave used that. To oh, nice. Yeah, to, to, to work out his sort of stage directions and whatnot. And the coolest thing was, so I had uh, a floor plan of Jack's apartment. It was actually loosely based on Dave and Denny's apartment, their first apartment together. And uh, so... <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, we could talk. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but the uh, floor plan itself never appeared in the, the book, in the back pages of the book or anything. It was never publicly seen um, so all you saw was the camera angles that were used throughout the storytelling process right so um, like when I looked at a, a page and where David had put the characters I would so I would take my floor plan and I'm going okay if, if uh, Cerebus is standing here and Jack is standing here so the camera angle has to be you know over Cerebus's shoulder and we'd be looking in this direction and this is the corner of the room that we would see so I would draw that corner of the room right and some guy after Jack's story was done or near the end of it sent me a drawing, a floor plan of Jacka's apartment (laughs) that he reconstructed just by looking at all the different camera angles in the book, and he said that the, the key was the wood box in the kitchen i had drawn this like little box for holding wood next to the stove in the kitchen, and that he could tell by where that was in a certain panel. Was, oh, so the kitchen must be over Did here. And right
4: back and say you need a girl. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I thought that was pretty cool. Like his, and he was bang on. This his floor plan was was bang on. To, to I bring. have to say that was one of
4: the greatest things about um, service was the authority that you brought to the work because he had Dave's you know great stories and, and goofy characters and so on. But it just, like, really cemented it.
3: Yeah, and it gave it, it it grounded it in in a way, right? And Dave could go go off, and he could, he was a chameleon, too. He could change styles. He would, you know, I'm going to do Neil Adams, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And he could... He never did Ken Stacey. Well, there are certain (laughs) limitations, too. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow, um, because the the background stayed so consistent, Mm -hmm. um that uh, it, it, just, it just sort of worked. Sorry. I sort of considered it as the, uh, sorry, the, the, it, was, it was sort of like the the, the classic Disney animated ones mm-hmm. where you had the cartoony figures against a more realis- realistic Newell. background. What's that?
4: You were Ivan Newell.
3: Was I?
0: Ken, don't make a reference that's like 80 years old. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I get this in
4: class all the time. I was like, Ken's telling a dad joke, everybody. <laughs> now you have to explain it to everyone. Yeah,
3: now you have to explain oh, that. Oh, sorry. Okay, who has
4: seen um, Sleeping Beauty Okay, Ivan Errol is the artist who was the stylist on that. He designed everything. He painted the backgrounds, he designed the characters, he did all the color styling, everything. You can thank him for that. And he made himself so unpopular. It was actually Walt Disney who handpicked him to do that. But he became so unpopular because he had so much control that he realized he had to leave afterwards, which is really sad. Hmm. But, um, sorry, let's get back on track. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. (laughs) It's not the biggest fun. So Gerhard where does your
1: architecture come from? It's kind of Art Nouveau, but not.
3: Oh, that's yeah, that, that's the fun part too. So the uh, this is way before Google or the <laughs> internet in general and uh, yourself. so we oh I know. And, well that's what, I've, I've been on a few panels now that's that are, that are the legends of this, the legends <laughs> of that. I have realized what it means is old guy. <laughs> <laughs> we're,
2: we're checking
4: our pulse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: But right down the, the street from the, the, the building we had our studio and offices in was a thing called a library. It's a building that's full of books.
4: <laughs> I'll Google that to see. <laughs> <laughs> and I would
3: walk down the street to the library and I would just, um, there was like, a, I think there was even still the card catalog, you, you know, <laughs> that you had to look up books. And I would, I would come back with this. Stack of books, and, and I would just start flipping through them and photocopying anything that uh, seemed relevant, or just do any names
1: it, stay with you? Sorry, do any names of artists or architects?
3: Art, no, it was just it was yeah. the thing itself, right? Mm-hmm. I, like you said, um, when you saw that list of names in the comic, then you realized that somebody actually did these. I never had that epiphany. Mm-hmm. I just I always just looked at the work and went, you know, that it's either cool or it's not. It appeals to me or it's not. And uh, and people ask me all the time, you know, who my influences were and, and all that. And it's like, I, I'm sorry. I can point at something and say, I love yeah. that. Um, it's but a house just, on your walk
0: to work. Really
3: <laughs> yeah, or, work. yeah, just going through. <laughs> it's, oh, I can use that. I can use that. Certain things stick with me. So, you know, certain things don't. But, um, yeah, I never really, as far as having specific names, I mean... Bernie writes, and you know there's the classic the you know the ones that anybody could could mention Um, it
4: is kind of weird though because I can look at a Jack Kirby page and tell you oh yeah that's Joe Sinnott or Mike Royer or Vince Coletta's Inking right and and, Joan (laughs) looks at me and goes he's not going to (laughs) survive (laughs) something. where does that come from right Paul
0: I'm curious um, with you with Concrete it's um, one of the more kind of human comics come out of that time. Um, like, there's a certain element that's just very... He's just genuine. not that angry, <laughs> is <it>? he? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um,
0: and, and I'm wondering where that's coming from with yourself. Like, was that an intention uh, in making concrete is really doing um, such, I don't want to say pleasant, <coughs> but there's just something warm about concrete. And and I'm wondering where that's coming from in comparison to like what we're looking. At really with the 80s black and white boom and the 90s stuff, it, it really stands out unique in a way.
3: It's because he's a really nice guy.
1: You know, there's nothing really calculated about it. Yeah. Um, it has been pointed out many times, he does a lot more thinking than a lot of characters. and uh, I still cling to thought balloons even though they've gone quite out of fashion. Um, I think it's just the work of an ambivalent person, yeah. writing an ambivalent character who is torn about a lot of things rather than um, having a decisive mission in life, is there kind of an, so many so many superheroes have.
0: Is there kind of an existentialism to it?
1: Oh absolutely, yeah. What do you do to have a useful, decent life, given your limitations? limitations or abilities, ability. Or ab- and abilities, yes. Yeah. Which are sometimes the same things. I'm
0: hmm. Ken, are um, you still awake?
4: <laughs> I was thinking about existentialism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Spacing out a bit there. <laughs> um,
0: I'm curious about kind of um, the painting and um, what you get out of doing. Uh, do you still do painting or is it all predominantly? Yeah, I get a better page
4: way? rate.
1: <laughs> Kenda's Ken beautiful painted commissions. Yeah, I've seen lots of portraits. And
4: Thanks for the plug. I'm a, a P12 dancer. Um, you know, really, filling out my dance card right now. So come on, down close. Thank you. Um, you know, again, it's um, I've I've always seen th- uh, of work, whether it's you know comics or single illustrations, in terms of of um, a finished piece of art, and to me that means taking it right to uh, it's, its ultimate point, which is color. And there is something, um, for those of you who are artists, you, you just know that like dragging a brush laden with pigment across a, a surface is just a wonderful, visceral experience. And, you know, I use a computer too, and like the computer to me is just a tool, you know, it's like, it's like. The computer to me is no different than that, right? You know, people say, oh, computers are so amazing. And so I'll kick back and say, whoa, yeah, watch this. It's like nothing happens. And it's like, you know, just because you give someone a scalpel, doesn't make them a surgeon. Just because you give someone a computer with lots of horsepower and Photoshop does not make them a great artist. What makes you a great artist is that application. It's like, it's like seeing and looking and absorbing and then, you know, putting it back on paper. Um, and so it's a tool. I and mean, You use it where it's appropriate, and you, you know, avoid it where not. But um, I... I teach a program in comics and graphic novels, this is another plug, uh, at Camosun College. It's the only program in kind of Canada where you can actually learn to, thank you, to, uh, to make comics. And this is one of the things we talk about a lot, is uh, yes, there are expedient ways of doing things, but you are missing, I think, part of the equation. And again, it is that, is that very direct and visceral experience you get from having direct contact with a tool on a surface. And not only that, when you finish, you have this beautiful piece of original artwork, which has intrinsic value. I mean, if you do it on the computer, you can make prints and so on. That's great, but um, you know, I think all of us make a substantial portion of our living selling originals because it is one of a kind. You give it to somebody; it's the only one. And you turn to the light, and the light catches the surface, and you see things where things work, and maybe things didn't work. And you know, it's, the the artist is there, and that has. Um, Enormous value. So, like I say, it's a, that's what really drew me to it. I really enjoy doing it. Um, Morning, Thales.
0: I have a Paul Chadwick Dazzler uh,
4: page at home that I quite like. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Who inked it? <laughs> uh, I can't remember.
1: Yeah, it was either Jackson Geis or Romeo Tangal. <laughs>
0: I think it, I'll have to look. I think
1: it actually it's the page with the with the credits on it. So oh. that's how
0: horrible a person I am remembering things. <laughs> Um, Gar, there's one particular uh, thing in Service that I want to kind of learn more about. Is there was an issue where Service was drunk going across a snowy intersection? And I heard that you did a whole mock up model
4: for that one.
3: I don't recall that th- specifically.
4: You're thinking
3: think of you? Seth. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't think of that that. I did make a, a physical model of uh, the Melmo street scene, um, mainly because uh, the the street was going uphill, so it's yeah. on a slope. Right. And um, it was just hurting my head too much to try to figure out the perspective. Uh, especially, like, like I said, the, they would draw these two characters. I'm going, okay, if they're standing on a sloping sidewalk... And the buildings are level. Yeah. So I just I had my uh, front-end elevations. Front-end elevations are drawings of buildings as if you're looking straight on at them. There's no perspective to them at all. Uh, they're very flat. Um, so what I did was I photocopied my drawings to the, the size I wanted, and I cut them out and I glued them onto a foam core board. That's genius. It worked out really well. It was really cool. <laughs> so all the windows and doors and everything were where they belonged, and I glued them all together. I put roofs on them. I put little chimneys on them, and I had the, the slanting street. So now when Dave drew something at a certain angle, I just picked up my model and went, oh, that's what it would look like. And, and it was just... it. So it, it was... a with a lot of this stuff because Dave and I had to do the page and a half a day and stuff we were always looking for ways to do things faster we were looking for little shortcuts little tricks we could do we'll try this we'll try that and it's like it was like, just do the work <laughs> right um, so the, the the pre-production sort of stuff seemed almost like you were wasting time like you're not getting a physical page done I'm not getting my page and a half done but it did help later on in, in uh, doing things more quickly because I had the, the, the reference there. Um, so yes, I did build physical models of uh, some of the backgrounds. I built a, I don't know later on in the uh, part of the story called Fall in the River." Um, there's that barge that they're on, and I built a little a model of the barge as well, and uh, I actually, in a very early primitive uh, 3D home architect computer program, I uh, put some designed some rooms in that as well. And you could, so I had the, one of the only things that was uh, that you could edit in in the thing was uh, like floor lamps. You could decide how tall the floor lamp was going to be. <laughs> so I'd have a three foot one for Cerebus, and I'd have a five foot <laughs> one for Jacka, and I could put those in the room wherever I wanted. And then you could place the camera in the room wherever you want at whatever height. And I would again, I would just try to match where Dave had the two characters, wow. and then you hit uh, the 3D button. And then you go and make a coffee or something. <laughs> this right, is back in the... Random yeah, random yeah, the little spinning wheel is going and going and going. And, and about ten minutes it later... It was like running
4: a filter in Photoshop back in, you know, yeah. Photoshop 3 or something. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I mentioned Seth was because he actually built his, the entire town of Dominion that a lot of his the stories take place in. He built them all out of cereal boxes. Yeah. He painted them all gray and stuff. And he actually had a show at the Art Gallery of Ontario where he had the entire town.
3: This yeah? It beautiful. Wow. Yeah. But the they're entire not built town. to
4: a consist- consistent scale. Sorry? They're not built to a consist- consistent scale. That's because he's a cartoonist. <laughs> That's because he's not Gerhard. <laughs> yeah. I would have done it right. If you get it by scale, there'll
0: probably be three buildings done at this point. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, does anyone have any questions? Oh, um, I hope so. No. Go
3: ahead. Do you want any of the No. No, no. Just yell it out. Um, I have a
2: question, um, I, uh, I also love to, to make art, and my question for this review is, I can't be only person who sometimes, for lack of better terms, loses her muse. Uh, sometimes right when I start this big ambitious project or in the middle of it, I abandon it and I have several unfinished pieces, uh, or I'm almost finished, and then I lose it. So what, uh, my question to you three is what do you, what do you use or what do you draw upon in those moments to either, you know, not so much motivate because if it's something you do as a job for pay, obviously I pay my rent because I really strong motivation. Um, But inspiration and um, to either get you through that sort of artistic block or even just see it from a different perspective and turn into something I don't know if you
4: do it myself, but my son is also a cartoonist and he does Inktober and you know some of these challenges, which I think are terrific, because they once you pretty much sign on to it, you are bound uh, you know, by um, you know, the, the the requirements and the desire to do that. So every day you have to do something. And again, it's that enemy of art absence of limitations. It, if if you give yourself Constraints and say I will do this every day, regardless of how good, bad, or indifferent it is. Then you will, you know, continually build those skills. And um, if you wait for the muse to breathe in your ear, um, you, you know, you, you could be waiting a long time. It really, it really, it's just. I say to our students, like, what's the most important thing about making comics? Start your comic, what's the second most important thing? Finish Finish your your comic. comic. (laughs) And it's really that straightforward. I mean, I have had all kinds of times where the last thing I want to do is sit down and work on my comic. But you know, you got to do it. There's those expectations. Even if you're just doing it for fun or a hobby or or you're you're just posting online, you have followers, you have viewers, you have people who have expectations. And there's that wonderful feedback loop that when you do something, they say, wow, this is really great. I really enjoyed this, etc., etc." So it does give you that kind of responsibility. Um, but really, it, it just, I'm sorry, it really comes down to bums and seats. You know, you just sit down and do it. I, I actually have a
1: suggestion. Work with a friend. On, yeah? While they're doing their project. It's just impossible. They'll steal your ideas, though. <laughs> <the hall. laughs> it's, it's just impossible to sit and do nothing when
3: someone is being enterprising next to you. That's true, that's a good point, because Dave and I always used to work, we didn't work very far from each other. The first studio that uh, Dave had when I joined him, he was at one end, I was at the other, and then when we got the, 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 the little house, he was in the, the, the dining room, I the living room, I was in the dining room, so we were I always like within sight of each so. other, and that the, having somebody else there working away keeps you working at it, that's definitely true. Does Dave's frenetic energy help? Frenetic energy. Yeah, there's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. He was he was driven. He was uh, Cerebus He um, when I said that I tried to keep it to a like a nine to five kind of job. He lived and breathed Cerebus. He was always writing. He always had a notebook with him. He was writing in his sleep. When he would we go to dinner and have what I thought was a casual conversation, um, and it would show up, you know, three issues later <laughs> in the book. But he was always writing. He was always working.
4: Uh, Paul's point is really well taken. Like, like, marry another artist.
1: <laughs> you know, I, um, this is a, a very timely suggestion. But um, I met a cartoonist in Portland. She just uh, skypes with a cartoonist friend while they work, mm. and they don't feel the pressure to talk. They just work away.
0: I just um, did an interview a couple of weeks ago with the team on Shape of Changing Girl and the writer will Skype with the artist and they'll just hang out. The artists will be drawing and just kind of occasionally say see. something to each other. I mean, the, bi- the
1: big thing. downfall, the, the, the big downside of this profession was so lonely. Mm-hmm. But I guess it doesn't have to be. Things are changing.
4: But that's the nice thing is like, you know, um, our alumni in the program have started a, a comics collective and every Wednesday night they meet uh, in a restaurant and stuff themselves with cheesecake and, and uh, do comics jams and wraps I don't know how many pages it's, it's amazing and you know there's cloudscape Commons here and then I'm sure there's other just you know collectives um, so yeah just like network and say okay every Tuesday or every second Tuesday or something we're going to meet at this restaurant and there's also things like Dr. Sketchy and there's all kinds of opportunities to, you know, to do that, get together and, and work together, and and have no other expectations, than you're going to eat an awesome piece of cheesecake and just draw some comics. But it does just... cheesecake really help? Oh, absolutely. It? well couldn't it hurt could <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> you know? for the first forty minutes. <laughs> yes. But <Yeah.
3: laughs> yeah. well, um, what you said too about if you wait for the muse to whisper in your ear, there's I, I can't tell you how many times where I, I'm staring at the blank piece of paper or what I'm, you know, supposed to be doing on the next page of Cerebus, and it's like. The last thing I want to do is, is draw another whatever fill in the blank and um, but there's it, it, like you if you wait for the inspiration if you do the hand to the forehead tortured artist <laughs> thing you'll never get anything done you'll never get anything finished. just do it just start on it sometimes just if, if, uh, if i'm just drawing a blank literally um, i'll just rule up borders like I'll put a border around the page and i 'll put a I'll, I'll put my my center lines through, like an X through it, right, and then find the center, and I'll divide the page into thirds, right, and uh, and I'll just start, I'll just start, I just move the pencil around, it's like, oh, hey, that looks like something, you know, and then, and just work at it, if you wait for inspiration, you're toast.
4: There's a great story about uh, Will Eisner's studio, and there's an incredible artist that's not very well known named Mort Meskin, and he worked for the studio for, you know, for a while, and like a week or something went by and he had not turned any pages. And Will said, what was the problem? And he said, I, I just, I, I can't get started. And so Will just, said, give me that. And he took the piece of paper and quite literally did what you did. He just put a squiggle here and a squiggle there and an X there. And said, okay, here. And he went,
2: oh, things <laughs> <laughs> and, and away he went. And that
4: became the routine. It's a true story. Like every morning, one of the other artists in the studio would just take his pages and like scribble on it. So there's some, it, I mean, there's a real tyranny of that blank page of just, yeah, yeah. And but like Gary says, you, you put some marks on it, and the process has started, and it's just like, you know, you take off from there. I think we had another question.
2: Yeah. You had said before about how art is never finished, right? So when you reach a point where you have to turn it in, or you, you have to give it to your publisher, and off it goes,
1: when it's not complete to you, when you then look
4: at it later, do you see the holes? Oh, I don't look answer? at it later. I just never look at my work because <laughs> <laughs> that's all I see. Or you never have yeah. a bad line. Some of you, I just could I have done that just a little bit more. Oh, of course, yes. and 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 there is, um, you know, artists are pretty retentive that way. And and you know, I've looked at stuff I've done in the past, think, oh, I could have done that so much better. And gee, somebody would pay me to redo it. I love redoing <laughs> it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's um, it is tough because you get this objectivity about your work from distance. And that's always really, I don't I, I won't characterize it as being dangerous, but you do start looking at it and thinking. But I think the important thing, though, is, is that that then becomes, this is what I, I didn't do as well as I could have. So the next time I've learned something from that. So everything becomes an object lesson. It's like, oh, OK, that was really dumb. I should have done this that, the other thing. And so the next one, you're, you know, you're going to improve upon. Um, but honestly, I, I don't. I've had opportunities in the past, but I'm not. I don't like the idea of redoing stuff because, you know, there's just so many ideas out there that you want to explore and
1: you want to move forward.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: You know, I hated the tedium of lettering and toning best wishes, but man, I was grateful for the chance to move eyes up and enlarge mouths and just get all those drawing errors that slipped through like four stages of work and we still
3: there. So you mean on the, on di- the computer? Di- digitally, you like? yeah. yeah.
4: That's cheating. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's the finished product that counts, right? Because a lot of, again, I said that we were always looking for tricks and, and stuff, and the photocopier became a real, this is okay, before Photoshop and all that. So we actually, literally, on the photocopier, you know, blew things up, or shrank things down and copied and pasted them and glued them onto the page. Did
4: you have a waxer?
3: <laughs> no, we never, no. Straight, I built a little spray booth out of an ah. old kitchen cabinet and just, with the spray glue. We ah. I know, we should have got a waxer.
2: <laughs> but cut, uh, yeah, who, who, they're all just tools
3: to, toward the finished product. Like who, you said, moving, moving eyes and mouths around, absolutely. If, if it doesn't look right to you, fix it before it's printed. Who cut all the linter tone on Oh, I did all the toning. Yeah. Oh, you You That's why your fingers are Oh, I know. I've got got scars. (laughs) I'd find tone. I'd be (laughs) in the shower the next day (laughs) and I've got tone stuck to me everywhere.
2: (laughs) What
3: the hell? It really hurts because it's really sharp.
2: (laughs) People may may not know what it is, (laughs) but
1: it's like a sheet of scotch tape with little dots.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's like 10 by 15 out and lay sheet. it on
1: and then cut away everything except
3: which, where you want it. a lot of manga artists still tedious. use that stuff. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's the only place you can get it yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do not miss doing all that toning. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah.
4: More questions. Yeah, mm-hmm. This side of the room, yes. Oh? Um, well
3: I was just wondering, uh, I've seen your That Jack Kirby and Stan Lee worked on um, big name properties. At what point in your life did you decide to go with the Indian route?
4: For me, it was having gotten out of my system that desire. You know, again, from the time I was 11, I wanted I wanted to be Jack Kirby when I grew up. Honestly, I, I had this elaborate fantasy that I was going to go to New York and and fabulous Flo Steinberg would usher me into Jack <laughs> Stan's office. And he'd be on the phone with Jack Kirby saying, what's that, Jack? You got the flu? You can't finish Fantastic Four. Jeez, what are we going to do? And I'd say, Stan, give me a shot. I can do this. You know, I don't know, Yeah, you for a kid? And, you know, I'd say, yeah, sure. And he'd take me to the bullpen, and then Jim Steranko, John T. Jim Steranko, and... You know they'd all be sitting there right I, this is my this is my like 12 so like, you 12 were delusional basically totally, totally. <laughs> and i would knock out an extra fantastic four and they'd do a great job and i'd bump into jack kirby later in the bullpen and say not bad kid <laughs> i'm in the bullpen see it <laughs> me a cigar <laughs> right, of so
3: course it wasn't anything like that but, but still
4: it was um but once i had done iron man once i had done you know those characters i thought "Well, that was really cool i got to honor the things that had inspired me, but then there are like so many other stories, and I have to give a lot of credit to a guy named Mike Friedrich, who was one of the early independent publishers. He did Star Reach, and he gave us some like really early opportunities to really stretch. I mean, I did a, um, a series for him called The Sacred and the Profane, which was a it was it was, uh, it was an examination of faith disguised as a um, sort of a, um, a space opera. Um, and so it, I mean, he was he was doing things that the mainstream, and that was the thing. The limitation of the mainstream are such that, you know, they uh, superhero comics, there's there's not a great deal. Especially this is back in the '80s, there was not a great deal of latitude you had. And so when you're doing independent comics, there's a great deal more that you could say you do, and you could swear and have gratuitous nudity and stuff. like that. <laughs> oh,
3: that good stuff. Yeah. Like that. Um,
4: so yeah, so Mike was was a real a real champion, and I think. Paul, when
1: did you start working with mine? Eighty-five, yeah, and you know, publishers were springing up like mushrooms back then. It, it really was a reflection of the fact that comics were distributed to comic book shops for the first time. So we have Phil Stuling and that gang to thank yeah. for our careers. Yeah. yeah. All right, we had one
0: more
1: question.
2: When digital first started coming into the industry, did you was there did you have a real push against it? You, I oh, I you did. Really I thought it was
4: strategy? a tool of the devil, and it would like take jobs away from honest cartoonists. <laughs> 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 and then I tried, and thought, wow, this what? is fun <laughs> and easy. Woo-hoo. I could be so much more productive now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> I think if I had one of those. Uh drawing tablets and, uh, and I, didn't, I don't even know the name of the program you used for, for, for <laughs> drawing or whatever. But what would kill me would be that undo button. I would oh. if I was using uh, the that for Cerebus, I would still be working on issue two hundred. <laughs> oh I, no, I can fix it. I can do that better. Undo, undo, undo. I'll save that version, and, and you know, if I can't do a better one, I'll use that version. And undo, undo. I'll do the weird it again, thing do is, man,
4: when I first started using the computer, I'd be working late, and I'd be working on my drawing board, and I'd, my hand would be going like this. It's like stop. <laughs> like well, I'm actually drawing stuff on paper, but my hand would be trying to go undo. <laughs> really? Yeah. Getting that Control Z thing? Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Never worked. I had to find an eraser. I had to train my hand to go find an eraser. But I mean, at
3: the at, you know, at the same time, on the other hand, or whatever, that the inking is is, I mean. Penciling I enjoy, especially rough penciling, you know, all the loose lines and stuff, and I'll figure out which one's the right line later, right? (laughs) And and then, yeah, and then so you tight pencil, you tighten things up, and you go, oh, that's close to the right line, and then when it comes to inking, it's like, that better be the right line. Well, that is the right line now because it's on the page, right? And that's what I mean. If I were doing that on computer, I'd just undo, try that again, undo, try that again. (laughs) I'd never get anything done. Do you do you, do you use computer for oh I think computers on whole have made
1: comics much more beautiful objects. I think the one sad thing is archiving that the lettering will not will no longer be on original art and all digital information disappears eventually mm-hmm. It's
4: funny about uh, Brandon Graham had an interesting uh, somebody posed a question about like you do some digital lettering and some lettering you do on your comics like how do you you know distinguish or determine which is which it says. The comics, I really care about my hand letter. Oh, yeah? And because it is, there is a totality to that page where you have considered very carefully, like they, they had to do back in the day, um, where the balloons are, are an incredibly important part of the storytelling, of the design, the composition, of eye tracking, all that kind of stuff. So nowadays, of course, you can just do a panel and then afterwards, like, oh, I'll just stick a balloon in here and I can move it around wherever I want. But if you are making that commitment that the, this is where the balloon goes and you've got to rule off with your little Ames lettering guide and stuff and boom, it's there and if you've got it off by a quarter inch or something, then you have to live with that. Of course, until you scan it in, then you can cheat. Yeah, maybe, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> then you can cheat.
0: Right. I was, I've been reading uh, Chris Ware's new monograph book. It's about yay big. Oh, I saw that. It, wow. It's beautiful and wonderful. Can and I have it? <laughs> <laughs> when you finish
1: with it, What is <laughs> that? I, I'm not aware of that.
0: Uh, Chris Ware, he, he has, it's like an art book called Monograph. Um, and it's uh, kind of a memoir look at his past works. Um, and in it, he talks about lettering this one story about how he did the lettering too big and the whole thing felt off and wrong. And so he pulled out his aims and he did just a little bit smaller. <laughs> no, and it was perfect. That's <laughs> such a
2: Chris Ware story, <laughs> so yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, anything else? Any other questions? I think we at our time. I want to thank all Already? of us. Already? Oh, just <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be downstairs at table P something. Uh, well, P11, 12,
4: and 13. There
0: yep. we go. We're yeah, we're all together.
2: We're all together.
3: Thank, you thank, thank right. you, thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. Well, thank, thank you. For you. All. Thank you. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy. just